Once again, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ruth, starting in the second chapter this morning. The Great Redeemer. What a subject for our consideration. Our Great Redeemer. Well, in the story that's told to us in the book of Ruth from these people of God that lived so long ago, over 3,000 years ago, this story begins with a tragedy, a tragedy after tragedy, famine, loss, death. And as we come to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, we see Naomi and Ruth, these two widows, and you can imagine if you just think in your mind, picturing these two widows alone, making the long journey back from Moab into Israel, having gone away full, as Naomi describes it, and coming back utterly emptied. Empty, coming back with nothing in their hands, back into the promised land. But even with the tragedy that has, has taken place, we have various signs of hope, little lights that are shining into their situation to give hope in the midst of the darkness. And God has a way of doing that in our lives. I, I believe even sometimes in the darkest of times that we go through, God shines lights into our life. And sometimes they're dim at first, but uh, today we have the joy, I, I, I believe, as we uh, come to the conclusion of this story, we have the joy of seeing how this all works out, and all comes together in God's plan. And I love a happy ending. I think most of us love a happy ending, and God's story always has a happy ending. Not every story in the Bible, not every uh, thing that unfolds always ends neat and tidy and, and wonderful, but uh, the story as a whole has a glorious and happy ending because it is God's story that he's writing, that he has put together. And he will make sure that his purpose comes to his fulfillment. And we have in the book of Ruth, we have in some ways a microcosm of God's great story that he has for mankind and for his work of salvation in the earth. And I hope we can see that by the end of the day that will come together for us. But what were these lights of hope that Naomi and her sorrow could see? Well, first of all, she had a companion. She had a friend, Ruth, by her side. She was not alone. So even as dark as it had gotten for her, she had someone who was uh, in some ways better to her than all that she had lost. This wonderful woman who had claved to her and was by her side. So she had hope. Uh, they also had ho a glimmer of hope in that it says God had visited his people and gave them bread. And they come back in the beginning of the barley harvest. And then as we open chapter 2, there's a third ray of light, a hope that's shining into this story here, because it begins saying, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, and the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Boaz, uh, this name uh, means strength or swiftness. And he is described as a mighty man of wealth, and he is described as a kinsman, the Hebrew word goel, and it's translated kinsman or redeemer, kinsman redeemer, or near kinsman. 
And so you can see why we focus on this theme of the Redeemer, because uh, the, the kinsman was also called a Redeemer, and by the end of this, you'll see why that is true as well, based on their responsibility and role that the near relative had was to be a redeemer for those that had come down into, uh, into difficult situations of various kinds. And so there's hope. And, and, and you can imagine, if you were in a situation where you were poor and you were destitute, it would be quite a hopeful thing to find out you had a rich relative. And that's what, that's what happens here. They find out they have a rich relative. A close Elimelech, this man who had died, the first man mentioned in this story, he dies, and his sons, made after his image, they die. This story begins with, with death. Begins with death, like the Bible as a whole. After the creation, the story of man begins with the death of the first man, and he dies in the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree. And this story begins with death. But this man, he had a relative, Boaz, he was a mighty man of, of wealth. And as we saw yesterday, as Ruth goes out to glean in the field to be able to provide for her and her mother-in-law, she just happens to glean in the fields of Boaz, of this mighty man of wealth. And he takes notice of her, says, who is this? Whose damsel is this? And he saw her, and he saw her, uh, and he looked after her. And so let's take a little bit of time here and consider Boaz and the character and, and nature of this man because it is, uh, one, an example to us of godly character in various ways of what it means to be a man of God in this world. And uh, so it's an example for us to follow after his example. And then also... He is a type and shadow of our Lord Jesus Christ. So his characteristics are fulfilled and then taken to a whole nother level in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is important in the uh, origin story of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and of King David as well, which we'll see. So let's consider the character of this man, several things about him. First of all, uh, we see that he is a man of faith and a man of obedience to God. We see that right from the beginning. It says in verse 4, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. We see from his, his thoughts and his nature. Now it was, it was in the law of God that God had given and written in tables of stone that you were not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So that means... The, the people of God, they didn't throw around the name of the Lord lightly. They didn't just speak it just, uh, just out of a, a pattern or habit. They spoke it and they meant it. And they meant what they were saying. And so you think of Boaz coming out to his field, to his laborers, and he says, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. He was a man of faith. He knew that uh, what they needed most of all was the presence of God in their lives. And, and, and we can remember that as well. As I, as I come and I have the, the blessing to come and to stand before you and to preach God's word, what I hope for you and would, would uh, speak to you most of all, the Lord be with you. If the Lord is with you, 
Everything else is going to come together in your lives and in your church if you have the presence of the Lord. And that's what he desired, and, and they answered him. He had, he, you see, he had set a pattern and an example of a God-fearing and a God-honoring culture in his community. They said, they answered, the Lord bless thee. He was a man of faith, and he was a man of obedience. I, I read yesterday, and if anybody wasn't here yesterday, I'll just remind, in the law of God, it instructed a landowner when they were harvesting their fields to not harvest the corners of the field and to not glean the field after it had been gone through once, they were to leave behind whatever was left behind so that the stranger in the land and the poor would have something to glean from the field and, and to allow them to come. And they didn't, when, when the stranger or the poor came into their field, they didn't drive them away, kick them out, scare them off. They allowed them to go and to pick up the grain. And Boaz, clearly, we can see he was obedient to the commandments of God. So he was someone who was living his life in service and obedience to God. So what, what a great example we see in him. We also see that he is someone who is looking after and protecting the weak. You know, he is a, he is a vision of strength in here. He's a, he's a strong man. He's a man of wealth. He's a man of land and means. But in his position of power and strength, he looks after to be a protector of the weak and the vulnerable. And we see several examples of that. Uh, when, he, when he talks to Ruth, notice what he says to her in verse 8. Boaz said unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from thence, but abide here fast by my maidens. He says, You have a place. You have a safe and secure place which will meet all of your needs. So stay right here. Stay with my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? So she's going to be safe, and he's making sure she's protected. So he's looking after this stranger, vulnerable. She could have been in a very vulnerable situation as a young woman, alone, a stranger, out of place, in a place she doesn't know, and he takes notice of her, and he looks after her, and he protects her. I've charged the young men that they shall not touch thee, and when thou art thirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. We also read yesterday about how uh, later on, when Naomi devises the plan to make a match between Ruth and Boaz, that uh, Ruth, uh, in asking, presenting to Boaz to make an offer of marriage to her, she puts herself in a very vulnerable situation. He doesn't take advantage of her. He doesn't take advantage of her vulnerability and her weakness, but he treats her honorably, respectfully, and he sends her away as she came, safe and secure, with the assurance that he would take care of everything he needed to take care of in due time, in due order. So we see that in his character. Someone who looks after and protects the weak rather than exploits the vulnerable. We also see he's a man of great kindness and generosity. Of course, he, in obedience to God's law, he did what was necessary. He allowed the stranger to glean in his field. But he goes so far above and beyond that in his kindness to her. And it is, a, it is not just a responsibility. Um, it's not a duty, just a duty and obligation for us to be generous it's a privilege 
to be generous. It's a joy, uh, not, not in some esoteric or, or abstract way. It, you will find such joy and happiness in being generous to others. You, it, it will bring joy to your soul and, and, and meaning to your life when you have an opportunity to bless someone because you are acting in accordance with the heart of your God. Because that's how God is to us. So generous, so kind. So, so he doesn't just let her glean. He doesn't just do the bare minimum, but he lets her come into the house and eat in the house. And then uh, notice this. He says in verse 14, And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime, come now hither and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. Reproach her not. Don't, don't bring shame upon her. Don't make her feel embarrassed or shameful for what she's doing. Let her go anywhere you, she, she wants to go. You know, he's, he's, giving, he's being very generous and and, and, and open with her to let her have everything he needs. He just, I just picture this, this scene in my, in my mind. He's there, and he's calling her in. Come, sit at the table. Sit with the reapers. He's treating her like part of the family. He's, he's welcoming her in. Not treating her like a... She's not even like a stranger. She's one of us now. She's one of our people. He had heard what she'd done, and he is... Uh, attempting to return the kindness, but he's just a generous man as well. Someone who doesn't want to give the, the poor and the needy just enough, but to bless them with abundance and, and overflowing kindness. And isn't that how God is, is for us? We could say, my cup runneth over. God doesn't just give you what you need, but he pours out an abundance in us. And he says in verse uh, 16, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. This is what I mean when I'm saying Boaz, he goes above and beyond what is necessary in the law, and he blesses her with such a fullness and abundance. He's telling his reapers, they're out there harvesting. You know, this is not the most efficient way to harvest your field. He's saying, you know, as you're going out and you're picking up the grain, the big juicy hunks of of the barley and you're you're loading it in you know every once in a while you just take some of those handfuls and just whoops drop that whole handful on the ground there so that when Ruth's coming by she doesn't have to work extra hard it's just there in abundance for her and by doing this he was not only being generous to her not only giving her abundance but he was doing it in a way with discernment and wisdom that would cause her the least amount of shame that, that, would, that would bless her in the most way because he wasn't calling her aside and, and saying, oh, you're, you're in great need, so here, we're going we're gonna to just uh, give you this abundance. Um, he allowed her to, to be working for it, but to have her work bear a, a fruitful labor that was above and beyond what would have even been natural. And that's also how God is with us. God blesses us above what we could ask or think, or certainly what we deserve. When you're laboring in the service of the Lord, you'll find that God will do things that go beyond what your labor and your effort would have normally 
produced because it's blessed by God to give the increase in such abundance. And so we see that he's, he's generous and he's kind to not just to those, um, I think of the words of Jesus when he says, when you have a feast, you know, call not the, call not your, your, you know, rich neighbors and friends that can pay you back after you've uh, shown them their, the kindness, but he's, but he tells them to call the poor and call the lame to, to, to show kindness, in other words, to show kindness to those who have no ability in their state to repay that kindness to you. He tells you, his disciples, he tells us to do that. And when he tells us to do that, what is he doing? He's telling us to follow in the very example that God has showed to us. God is kind and generous to those who have no ability to repay him. You know, if we serve God faithfully all our lives, we're still unprofitable servants. We still cost him more than we do for him. And we always will. But does that stop him? Does that hold him back from pouring out his kindness? No, he pours it out all the more because he delights to do so. Because he loves us and cares for us. We also see that he's, uh, he's a righteous man. He seeks to do everything in the right and orderly and decent way in what he does. Uh, and we see that especially as we come to the story of how he handles his arrangement of his marriage to Ruth. Ruth wants him to marry her. And you see right away, he wants to marry her. There's no question uh, to the reader of this story that Boaz wants to marry her. He, uh, notice what he says when she uh, comes and she lays at his feet and she says, uh, you know, to spread your skirts over me, that's to bring me under your protection and your care. Um, when he says this, notice what, when she says this to him, um, verse 10 of Ruth chapter 3, and he said, blessed be thou of the Lord. Blessed be thou. He's he's thankful for this. He says, Blessed be thou, the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. Now, Boaz understands, and we can understand from his discernment, because he's a wise, uh, discerning man. He understands that Ruth, um, Ruth is not after Boaz, because Boaz is rich. That's not a good reason to, for a woman to, to seek a man because of, just because of his wealth. And he understands that she's not. Notice what he says. Uh, Boaz is probably uh, apparently quite a bit older than, than Ruth. We don't know how much, but he's quite a bit older uh, because he says, Blessed art thou, thou hast shown kindness, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether rich or poor. She was beautiful, uh, apparently, and uh, she was known as a virtuous woman. And so he understands, you know, you could have gone after a young man, a rich young man, but you didn't. Um, she was apparently seeking to do things in a, in a right and orderly way, and she had perceived his character, his kindness, and his generosity. And she was drawn to this, to the godliness of this man. She was drawn to that. And so she, were, she wasn't looking for something better, something uh, different. 
she was drawn to him, and he blesses her in this. And so he wants to marry her. He wants to marry her. He's uh, very happy. Uh, But uh, notice his response as it goes on, verse 11 of Ruth chapter 3. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. You might be familiar with uh, Proverbs chapter 31. You can read Proverbs chapter 31 sometime. And the next time you read it, Here's what you can do. You can think about Ruth. Ruth is one of the women that's described in Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, Charm is deceptive and beauty is deceptive. Charm is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's the greatest true form of beauty is to fear and to love the Lord and to serve the Lord. And that's the beauty, that's the vision of beauty that Ruth had. You know, we don't know what, what she looked like in her appearance. She was probably, uh, she was probably very beautiful. But, you know, that, that's, that's not really what ultimately mattered for, for us, for Boaz. She was beautiful in the soul because she had a fear of God, a humility. And she was adorned with godliness and righteousness. And that's what made her beautiful. And when God makes his the bride of Christ, beautiful. He makes us beautiful by clothing us with righteousness so that we are a beauty in the sight of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church, the bride of Christ, is a vision of beauty to the Lord Jesus Christ because she's clothed in righteousness. She's adorned with good works. She's she's washed clean in the blood of Christ. And so her beauty comes from that righteousness and that holiness. And he, he, he says, all the people of my city doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. So he's going to do all that she needs. All that you require, he says, I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that this comes together. And I, when I read this, I, I think in Boaz's mind right now, he, he's a smart man. He's an influential man. And he's going to make sure this all works out. He's going to make sure, and he handles it with wisdom. Um, and he says, Now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. So there was, okay, as many great stories have, as you come towards the end, there's a bit of a twist. He was a close relative of Elimelech, but there was, in fact, a closer one, a closer near kinsman. And this is where we come to this idea of the near kinsman. So, so let's think about this for, look into this a little bit. The near kinsman. Why, why did that matter? What was important? Well, as I pointed out, the culture and the customs of this time can be strange to us because we don't operate in exactly this way in our day and age. Some things are very different. And so not all of it we can apply uh, directly to our lives now because we don't quite function this way. But but uh, first of all, a thing to understand is that people that lived in that time, and this is, I think, a good thing for people in every age and generation, but people that lived in that time, they had a multi-generational view of their existence. They were not just living for today. They didn't just have an attitude, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They didn't just have an attitude that the measure of their life was what they accomplished 
on this earth during their 70 years that they lived here on this earth. That was not how they measured the meaning and importance and significance of their life. They had a multi-generational view. They, they had a view where um, when, when Rebecca is sent away from her family to go and to marry Isaac, and they send her away with a blessing, and they say, uh, I forget the exact number, but they say something like, be the mother of ten, thousands of millions. Thousands of millions. Something, so, something, be the mother of thousands of millions. See, they weren't just thinking, just go and have a good life, enjoy your husband. They were, they were thinking, have a legacy, which she did. I mean, this blessing came true so literally for her. She became the mother of, of millions that would be the people of God and would serve him. But they had a multi-generational view. So that, that is a, a beautiful vision that their lives... And this is true of our lives as well. Your life, the decisions you make, the children you raise and and have, and whether you have children of your own or you're a blessing to others in your life, the impact that your life has will have ripple effects down on through the generations and the centuries to come. That, That 10, 20, 100, 1,000 generations from now, the life that you've lived here in this earth and the, the, the impact that you've had will affect people in generations to come. That's, that's a, a weight in some ways of responsibility. And it was also something that intensified the tragedy that Naomi had experienced when she lost her husband and her two sons. Because she was, she was now empty, her, her legacy what would become of her and her descendants now was, was wiped from the face of the earth. So this was the culture and the attitude that they lived in. And you'll see it again when they pronounce the blessing upon Boaz and upon Ruth and, and their son later, this multi-generational view of their existence and the measure of their lives. So that intensified the tragedy. And, but there was a mechanism in the culture in the design to to deal with this. And it came in the form of this idea of a near kinsman. The near kinsman. Now what the near kinsman or the kinsman redeemer, what, what their role was is they had several roles. And it comes from this root idea of acting on behalf of, acting in the place of. Elimelech was dead. Everything that he could have done for his family, he no longer could do. So what are we going to do? Well, someone else needs to step up into that place and act on his behalf. And so the the near kinsman, the near relative, would perform several different uh, functions. For example, uh, there was a, a custom where if someone was murdered, a near kinsman had the right and in fact the obligation to kill the person who had killed them. That was a, you know, an, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was the, the law under which they lived. And so there's even provision made in the law that if uh, you accidentally killed, say you accidentally killed someone's brother, you're out chopping wood and the axe f- flies off and, and kills him. And his brother is now here. You killed my brother and he's going to track you down, but you didn't do it on purpose. There was provision made that you could go and you could seek out a city of refuge and get a fair trial, and, and, and be protected from this. Uh, but that was one of the roles of a kinsman. 
The dead, they can't avenge themselves, so the near kinsman was going to avenge their, their relative on behalf of them. Uh, it also came up, if you had, uh, because you came on hard times, you had to sell yourself into servitude. Then the near kinsman could come and they could, they could purchase you back from that because it was not ever God's intention for his people to live in a state of bondage, to live in a state of poverty. He made provision after provision that even if they came upon hard times, even if they had to sell themselves into servitude, or they had to sell their land and they lost their inheritance, God made provision that that would not be a permanent situation because he wanted his people to dwell in freedom and prosperity. So then also, if you, had to, if you lost your land or your wealth, and you had to sell your, the inheritance of your land that had been passed down through your tribe from generation to generation, then the near kinsmen, they could redeem it, buy it back. So they could buy you back if you were sold into slavery. They could buy your inheritance, your land back if you had to sell it because of your destitution. The redeemer, the relative, the near kinsman, the kinsman redeemer, could purchase back that which was lost and restore it so that it was whole. Restore your life so you could be whole and free and prosperous and established once again. So this was a very important role in their culture. So what happens with, with Naomi and, and Ruth as they come back? Well, Elimelech, he had some land, uh, but they had nothing left. They had nothing left to work that land or to, to deal with that land. They were destitute. Um, and so th- all they could do at that point was, was sell the land and take what they could to continue to provide for themselves. But a kinsman can come in, purchase it back, and restore And then there was also something called the law of leveret marriage, which is where it, again, gets very distant and different from our customs today. But if, if, uh, say you had brothers and and one of the brothers married and he died uh, before able to have a a child, then it was the duty of the brother, or apparently if the brother was not, if there wasn't a brother, a near kinsman, uh, given that they were, able to and and willing to, to marry the woman and to raise up a seed, to to have a child, and that child would be, would carry on the name, they would be in in effect the descendant of the brother who had died. So as to raise up seed on behalf of the dead. And that's uh, something that we're going to see come into play here. So Boaz is a near kinsman, but there turns out there's a nearer kinsman. We don't know his name because it's not told us, but there is. And so Boaz says, you know, hold on, stay, lay down till the night. Go away quietly. Don't let anybody know that a woman came into the floor. Uh, he's very discreet, uh, very um, concerned that everything's done decently and in order. Um, she comes home to her mother-in-law, verse 16 of chapter 3. Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. So Naomi understands. She understands he's going he's gonna to get this done. He's going to work this out. But they had to wait. They had to sit still. And sometimes that's how it is with 
us with God's plan for our lives. Sometimes God sends us out and we're, we're working, we have a, a mission, and it's clear what we need to do. And then there's seasons where there's nothing we can do. We just have to wait and trust that God has the means and the wisdom and the will to work things out according to his plan for our lives. So they wait. They wait. And Boaz goes. I said Boaz was influential. You can see this here in in chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. So the gate of the city. Now, in the Old Testament times, the gates of the city, that was not just a place to enter and exit. There was a whole architecture around these gates where people could sit and meet and where the elders, the leaders of the city, they met to make decisions, important uh, arrangement, business arrangements, political arrangements. That's why in the Old Testament, when it talks about sitting at the gates of the city, it's talking about a place of respect, a place of honor, a place of esteem, to sit in the gates of the city to, to, to make judgments. And Boaz, uh, again, uh, it says, he sat him down at the gates of the city. And then notice this, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. Again, we have something that seems almost like a chance happening. The kinsman comes by. Uh, they didn't have cell phones back then for him to call him up and say, meet me at the gates. Uh, it seems like he just happened to come by. And then Boaz uh, is, is of enough respect and esteem that he gathers 10 of the elders of the city so that they can be witnesses of, of what's about to come about. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, uh, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. So uh, he, he begins to tell this situation and this story. I also wanted to point out, I notice it, it doesn't say the name of this, this other nearer kinsman. It says, when Boaz spake, he says, Ho, such a one, like, hey, hey what's your name? Or so-and-so. Um, perhaps because it wasn't known uh, anymore, that name had been forgotten, or perhaps it is known in order to spare him the, the embarrassment in some ways of what's to follow, his name is left out of the story. But there's some irony here because of what's, what un, unfolds. So just take note of that. Uh, but he begins to tell Naomi selling this land. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Oh, okay, so he's, he's going he's gonna to buy this land. He wants the land. I'll, I'll buy that land. That's a nice plot of land. I'll take that. He wants the land. He wants the, the wealth that comes with it. Um, but there's a twist. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So I said Boaz would do all things decently and in order, uh, often unselfishly, he, is, he wants to raise up the name of the dead. He wants to have a, a descendant, a seed, to continue the line of Elimelech in, in, in its existence. This is an unselfish act. 
You, you know it's an unselfish act when you, if you go back and you read, for example, in Genesis, when uh, the three sons of Judah uh, were married to Tamar and the, and the first son died and the second son didn't want to raise up a seed in his brother's name. He, he didn't want to, to do that. Uh, this was very important. This was very significant to them. And notice, the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. He didn't want to mar his own. He, he, he already had children. Uh, he didn't want to have to divide his inheritance up. He didn't want to have, uh, perhaps, because she was a Moabitess. He saw that as a stain on the purity of his line. And the reason I say it's ironic is because of what will become of this line. And he didn't want to mar his inheritance by allowing this stranger and her seed to come in and to have and to share in his wealth and his abundance. Again, we see uh, again and again that there's a types and shadows of Jesus Christ in all of this. Think of what Jesus Christ was willing to do to lay down his life, the pure and spotless Lamb of God. And when he looked at his bride and he looked at uh, our sin and our unworthiness, that we were strangers, that we were by our nature children of, of bondage and sin, and yet he did not, he did not hesitate to make us his own to redeem us to himself. Even though uh, by appearances and the natural order of things, we might look at our sin and our unworthiness as marring his inheritance, but he didn't see it that way. It says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He even took our sins upon himself so that he could unite us with him. He, he says, I cannot redeem it. And then it describes it. Now, now, this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. So this was just the custom. And he's describing this as the custom, perhaps because uh, three or four generations later, when this was written down and they're telling the story that it had been passed down from generation to generation, this might have not been the custom anymore. So he says this was the time in former time in Israel. So they'd gather at the, before the elders of the city and the man's going to give up his right to the inheritance. And it says, therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. So it was a visible, tangible, he would take off his shoe and he would hand it to Boaz in front of everybody as witnesses. And everybody would remember not only what was said that day, but they would have that visual image in their mind. Oh, I remember what happened. Ten witnesses, ten elders. I saw it. He took off his shoe and he gave it to Boaz. He transferred the right of redemption to him. And Boaz has that right. And then he says to the elders of the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. 
And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, Ye are, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thy house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So they pronounce this blessing. Again, with this multi-generational view of the measure of their lives, they bless. And their blessing, this blessing, this came true in such abundance. Um, and, and as I said the very first day, you know, this, this story being read in the time of King David was an amazing story of the means through which God brought King David into this world. And so let's uh, just continue here and note a few more things. Um, what, what happens now? How does the conclusion of the story comes out? Well, well, the story begins with a man dying and his sons made in his image dying and it comes to its end. It, it concludes with a child being born into the world. A child being born and the child's name is Obed. Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. Another way that could be translated is, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a redeemer. Blessed be the Lord, who hath not left you this day without a redeemer. But he has given a redeemer a redeemer to purchase us back from bondage to sin and death, to give us an inheritance and to establish us in the land of promise, not only in this life, but in the age to come, eternal life. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, a nourisher of thine old age, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Now speaking about the child. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. So now this child becomes like her own child, along with Ruth. They're, they're, they're so close together that they're even going to share in raising up and nourishing this child. He's a restorer of their life. He's, he's, the, he's uh, going to take, when they were laid completely empty, he is now their hope for the future, is, is now in this child. And the woman, our neighbors, gave it a name, saying there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. The father of King David. So Obed, the grandfather of King David. Now the name Obed, the name Obed means servant or worshiper. And uh, one thing that helps me to remember the name, I don't know if this is related linguistically, but Obed is like the beginning of obedience. And, Ob- and that's what Obed means, servant, worshiper. And that's the name that they gave him. And he would, he would be the grandfather of David, who would be the, the, the great king who would write the Psalms of great praise and worship to God. And he would be the king that would unite uh, the tribes of Israel, conquer their enemies, and be a deliverer to the people. 
Now these, and now it goes on and gives the genealogy, and you know there's uh, many genealogies in the Bible, and none of them are insignificant. When you, when you stop and consider how important they are, it's easy to, to get lost in them sometimes when you're reading through, but now it's going to draw a connection all the way back from Genesis, the story of Perez, and all the way up to King David. And it's going to draw this connecting line from Genesis to the books of Samuel and the, the age of the kings and show how God connected it all together and brought to pass his great plan. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. And Ram begat Aminadab. And Aminadab begat Nashon. And Nashon begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz. And Boaz begat Obed. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David. And then, as significant as that was to the people in the time of King David, how much more significant us when we think about that little town of Bethlehem and what has happened there throughout the ages, going way back to when Rachel was buried there and her tomb was there, up through what happened in the time of Ruth, where David was from and he came out of, and then about a thousand years after David, In the book of Matthew, as the New Testament begins, we read this. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in the middle of that genealogy, verse 5, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of of Arias, and it goes on down from there all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was brought into this world through that line. So let me just, one, one final thing that I want you to see from the book of Ruth as we see that the book of Ruth describes not only this amazing story and example to us and types and shadows, but it is literally the, the means, a link in the chain of how Jesus was brought according to the flesh into this world. So it's of great significance to us. But not only that, but not only that, but all throughout the book of Ruth, everything in here points us to our Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation of us. Think about some of these names and their meaning. Obed, the servant of God. Jesus Christ is the faithful servant of God. He came to do the will of his father and to raise up a people to worship his name. He has strength to redeem his people like Boaz. We see Naomi's story, how she, she went away full and she was made by the Almighty to drink the cup of bitterness. But at the end, she was raised back up to fullness of joy, to uh, restored to her name of Naomi, pleasant, joy. And so it is with our Lord Jesus, that he came from a place of, of joy and, and glory with his Father, and he came down and he drank the cup of bitterness. He drank the bitter cup in our place so that we would be restored to life. And he was raised up. It says, as I said, for the joy that was set before us, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He was afflicted and made to drink the bitter cup. And he calls his disciples, he calls his disciples his bride, and he calls his disciples friend. And he says, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And he lays down his life for for you and me, for his people. He makes us 
his bride, and he calls us to forsake all and follow him. Oh, how glorious is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even as the first man, Adam, at the beginning, he died, and his sons after him in his image died, yet we have a near kinsman, a restorer of our life in our Lord Jesus Christ.